Welcome back to another podcast by the Florida Alliance to End Human Trafficking. I'm Erin Collins and have the privilege of serving as its executive director. Joining me as my co-host on this episode is Florida Alliance board member and healthcare professional, Dr. Phil Toll. Dr. Toll, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Erin. It's really nice to be here. I appreciate the opportunity. Dr. Toll, can you tell our audience about your education and background and your current healthcare role? Sure. I'm a licensed mental health counselor here in the state of Florida. I have a master's degree in clinical psychology from the University of Central Florida and a doctorate in clinical sexology from the Institute for Advanced Study of Human Sexuality in San Francisco. I currently work um, part-time for Aspire Health Partners, I'm a senior clinical advisor for the company, um, specifically looking at areas of advanced clinical training and consultation on uh, particularly difficult cases uh, with an area of emphasis on human trafficking. Now, we are very fortunate um, at the Florida Alliance to have your expertise sharing information and knowledge on this important topic. In previous discussions, you focused really on the brain trauma that individuals who have gone through exploitive situations like human trafficking. Can you share a little bit more about how exploitive situations and human trafficking can actually physically impact our brains? Absolutely. Uh, And any of us that experience a trauma of any kind would experience changes in the brain. Uh, For example, if you come across an automobile accident on I-4 or 95 or 75, that uh, is a difficult situation, may result in fatalities, it may be a pretty gruesome scene, uh, we would experience trauma. And there's certainly many other forms of trauma in our life experience. When we take a look at trauma, the brain changes with trauma, and there are three particular areas that change. The first one is that, and everyone's probably familiar with that fight, flight, or freeze experience. And that's the the amygdala, the middle of the brain uh, that controls that experience when we're faced with potentially life-threatening danger. Uh, And that can be real danger. For instance, you know, you're standing at the ATM and someone comes up behind you with a gun and threatening to hurt you or kill you if you don't take out money. Um, Or it could be a perceived life-threatening experience. So that which we may tell ourselves is life-threatening, which can be any number of uh, situations creating stress and anxiety. The second area of the brain that's specifically impacted is that which is related to the, and it's the midbrain, emotional regulation. So what that really means is that the the emotional reaction to the situation is uh, incongruent. Normally, hopefully most of the time that is equal. So if it's a situation like, say, for instance, um, you're you're in an elevator and the elevator gets stuck, you might have some anxiety about how long is it going to take to be rescued. With trauma in that area of the brain that changes, then the emotional reaction is not equal or congruent with the experience. So one may be overreacting, and I can give an example in a moment. And the third area of the brain, which is the the frontal cortex or the prefrontal lobe, areas that are responsible for what we call the executive functions, reason, decision-making, impulse control, judgment, and mood. So those three areas of the brain actually change. So it's a neurological change that occurs with trauma. And so when we talk about human trafficking survivors in particular, so all of us experience those changes with trauma. The difference and the significant difference with human trafficking survivors is the repetitive nature of those traumas. So when you think in terms of each and every individual that's violating the the survivor, so if you had, for instance, if you had five Johns a night, um, that would be 
generally an individual trauma. You take a look at, and that, and five is a conservative number, as we talk about often, more like 10 or more. And so each of those could be seen as a trauma. So these cumulative traumas over time become very, very significant. And, and an overwhelming level of trauma that none of us, unless we're a survivor ourselves, really can understand. Because in a, in a general human experience, we don't have that many traumas. Um, but with a survivor, it's multiple ongoing and can be for, as we all know, in the human trafficking field, an extensive period of time. Two to three years for out of the experience of the trafficking or the trauma for the brain to heal. So when we're taking a look at survivors and we're wondering why it's so difficult perhaps to engage them in services, to help them move along that journey, what I like to call the journey to wholeness, the restoration of of a normal, quote unquote, life, um, how difficult it is because the brain changed. So when we talk about that fight or flight and freeze, everywhere they look, they perceive life-threatening danger. So for instance, in the unit that Aspire runs, you know, um, we may ask them, you know, to make their bed or keep their room clean. And that can be experienced as a life-threatening trauma. Sounds simple, sounds easy, and yet that brain shifts that focus because of the changes neurologically that make it a life-threatening event. Asking them to go to the medication room for medications can result in some pushback and some arguing and some explosive reactions because the brain changed. Everywhere they look, even in simple, common experiences of life, it's deemed to be life-threatening on the part of the survivor because of that brain change. The same kind of reaction asking you to make your bed and there's this explosive reaction that like, seems like life is coming to an end. The world is falling apart because the brain shifted and changed and that emo emotional regulation is no longer present. And then finally, asking them to make easy decisions to engage in activities that most of us can engage in fairly routinely if we have not experienced the trauma become very, very difficult for them. And so when you're attempting to engage the human trafficking survivor in services, they're unable to filter and to create an integration of what's going on in the real world versus what's going on as a direct result of those neurological changes. It's so interesting to hear you discuss um, and outline how situations, um, in this case, as it relates to human trafficking, um, a survivor's brain um, is impacted neurologically. And again, for those repeated situations and incidents over time, and then how that, you know, continuum of care can change also, depending upon that, that individual's, you know, circumstance, you know, setting aside human trafficking, um, the last few years have increased vulnerabilities, and individuals that might have more risk factors, based on maybe their own isolation when there were, you know, stay-at-home orders um, in our state and others, um, you know, being isolated from school or the workplace, your social safety net, you know, family, people that we rely on. Um, if it's not, you know, an immediate family member, all those other individuals that really people can go to for support in times of challenge um, or frustration. Can you talk a little bit about how individuals, I guess generally, you know, or our coping skills, you know, we are even the most introverted of people, you know, still need other human beings um, to interact with. But there is that interaction that is lost when 
again, other factors accumulate in, in a vulnerable situation. And I'm thinking particularly of our, our youngest, you know, of individuals in our communities, our, our young students, our young, um, you know, adolescents, that it's a it's an interesting kind of new time right now where they're clinging for attention, for support, that longing. And a lot of, you know, young people, because it's so easy to do so, have kind of clung to their social media devices and the connections through the relationships through these apps. And as we know, unfortunately, not everyone has the best of intentions. So can you talk a little bit about just general coping and support skills that that we as individuals need, but then also for adolescents and for for minors during a, you know, their their you know growing up period, if you will, that young preteen, teen years, how support and having trusted adults and figures in their lives are so important. Sure. Absolutely. And and Probably in, in my philosophy is that in no time in human history have we experienced, you know, a worldwide um, trauma and um, um, struggle with stress, anxiety, and depression as a direct result of, of the pandemic. And I believe that we we have not yet seen, and it may be a very long time before we see the really long-term impact of a worldwide pandemic. And the difference between this experience and, and not to, in the Holocaust and in World War II and those kinds of things, swine flu, um, and not to downplay the stressors that those um, people experienced during that period of time. But no time in the history of mankind has every single human being on the planet experienced um, the trauma, the question. You know, during the pandemic, there, in the very beginning of the pandemic, if we recall, there were no answers. We had no idea how this virus may have been transmitted. We have no idea um, how long it would last. We had no idea you know, what was gonna be the impact, short-term or long-term. Many, many people died as a, you know, from COVID. And so that was frightening. Never in the history of humankind has there been a complete shutdown where you, know, you were told to stay at home and to be safe and to protect yourself. As, and, in addition to those who had to be in the workplace, i.e., hospital, you know, medical providers, first responders, you know, grocery stores, um, that put out there a a fear factor that was, I don't know what's coming. And human beings don't respond well to fear, um, and we often can create greater fear than is real. But with the pandemic, the fears were real. Long before we had a um, Immunization. It's like, how sick were you going to get? Were you going to get sick? I mean, if you remember um, early on with the arrows in the grocery store to go down this aisle and turn that way and six feet of distancing, don't come in without a mask. I, I remember, you know, having a mask in the car and getting out of the car without my mask and going, oh my gosh, I forgot my mask. I got to go back to the car and get my mask. That in and of itself created anxiety. Or you bumped into someone because you're going the wrong way down the aisle in the grocery store. All of those things. And the difference here is that, um, to your point, Aaron, where we reach out to people for supports and all of those coping mechanisms that we typically have in place in our lives, going to church, going to school, going to movies, going to the theater, going out to dinner, were not available to us. So there's a huge vacuum of resources that were abruptly taken away from us because the shutdown, if you recall, was like quick. It's like, you know, today. You know, these things are closed. You can't go there, et cetera. And so we didn't have time to prepare a, a, a strategy to help ourselves cope in those isolated situations. The elderly and young people probably suffered the most 
um, the elderly because many of them are isolated already. So if they live alone because they're widowed or divorced um, and going out into the world was the place that they received that support, that was taken away. Young children, uh, from a developmental standpoint, you know, when we remember, uh, even when we say young people, we talk about the human brain really not completing its development. Used to say age 24, 25. Now research says probably age 28. And so the brain's not fully developed anyway. And now we're placing upon that brain and that individual's need to cope and to deal with stress effectively when they don't have the capability neurologically anyway. So relying on others. So even their parents in their own home who were in their, you know, COVID bubble didn't have the skill sets because we were facing something that we had never seen before. And it was an unknown. It was really incumbent. And and I did a number of podcasts and kinds of things to help people um, develop some strategies, which were to really um, move within the context of their bubble to find um, situations and circumstances that would help them to manage their stress effectively. A part of it also, and there's always a silver lining, you know, um, to every situ- difficult situation, you know, the ability for telehealth services, for telecommunication, social media, that really expanded our worlds from an isolated bubble to say we could still have some of that human contact outside your bubble. You didn't have the physical contact. Like, you know, there were so many people and you probably heard these stories over and over again, like grandparents not able, not able to visit, you know, a newborn baby that typically you would grandma or granddad would have been there, you know, to assist in the process that couldn't happen. I have friends who didn't see a grandchild for two years you know, didn't lay eyes on the grandchild other than through, you know, telehealth services or teleservices, but couldn't hold the baby, couldn't be present. Even some dads who couldn't be in the hospital when the delivery of the baby occurred. So those separations that are a normal part of our life experience were taken away. And again, very abruptly. Imagine, and and I have stories from clients and some from friends, you know, whose loved ones were ill and dying, unrelated to COVID but who couldn't be in the hospital when the loved one was dying, who couldn't, there couldn't be funerals, there couldn't be weddings, there couldn't be baptisms. So all of those circumstances. So how does one wrap around, even the the best of us with the best skills, how did we wrap ourselves around the ability to manage the stress? So for youth, the importance was having those strong, significant um, safety net within, within that family system. And yet, when they're lacking the skills because it was an unknown and unusual, it became very, very difficult and really required a tremendous amount of effort on the part of parents and others to really continue to support. So, you know, how do you support someone when you don't know the answers? You know, and so you want to be reassuring, you want to be supportive and loving and compassionate, and they were, but their own fear of the unknown. And so a very difficult situation that requires, you know, superhuman efforts to to really come up with what's going to work. And and because we're individuals, some of those strategies are very different from person to person. And how do you discover if you lack those skill sets to begin with? You found probably found yourself in a much more difficult situation because you never may never have had to exercise those before in the lives of children. Um, the majority of children who have a safe environment, who have, you know, intact families, you know, whether the parents are still married or but they're co-parenting in effective ways, they didn't have that. And so it became very, very difficult. And again, I think we're going to see long term ramifications of that. Um, 
we don't even realize what those are going to be yet. Wow. Well, Dr. Toll, you personally gave me a lot of things to, to think about, um, but thank you so much for, for your insight um, on just important, again, skills, um, coping, and, and just trauma in general. Um, and obviously with regards to, you know, adolescence, um, didn't realize that the human brain is, is still forming and changing all the way up into your twenties. In this podcast episode, we'll hear from Holly Prince, the CEO of Simply Healthcare Plans, along with Samantha Farron, the senior government relations director of Simply's parent company, Elevance Health. Let's take a listen to this recent interview. Today, we're joined by Holly Prince, president of Simply Healthcare, along with Samantha Farron, Senior Government Relations Director of Elevance Health. Ladies, thanks for joining me. Hi, Erin. Thank you so much. We're so happy to be with you today. Thank you, Erin. Really appreciate it. Looking forward to the conversation. Holly, you are CEO and president of Simply Healthcare. How long have you been serving in that role and how did you get to the role that you have today? I have been CEO of Simply since... 20, February of 2020, right uh, ahead of the pandemic. I came in right um, at that time, which was you know incredibly challenging, but was a bootstrap learning experience, obviously, um, in the CEO role. But I have been with the company since 2010. I was one of the first employees of Simply Healthcare Plans as uh, the CFO. Um, so I'm a, uh, an accountant by training um, and have been in various roles in the company from my background in finance through operations and eventually to um, to the privilege of leading the company. In the in the way, way back, before I was a CFO, before I was a CEO, simply, I started my career out of college or my life out of college, I should say, as a Peace Corps volunteer. And that's where, <laughs> that is where my my passion for for being part of the community and helping people really blossomed. And I've been proud to be able to continue that through through work like what we do here at Simply. Wow, that definitely servant leadership. Holly, can you tell us more about your role as president with Simply Healthcare and what is Simply Healthcare? Yeah, thank you so much. I'm the CEO and president of Simply Healthcare Plans. And to start with your second question, Simply is a Medicaid and Medicare and Florida Healthy Kids HMO here in the state of Florida. We are part of the Elevance larger um, portfolio of companies, which is a national insurance company. And, uh, you know, I I say insurance and we'll get into that conversation later, but a company that really it's a healthcare company, um, um, a trusted partner for the journey of people throughout their life to achieve healthcare. And that's really going to be foundational for what we're talking about today. But getting back to what is simply healthcare plans, again, um, we are Medicare and Medicaid HMO, privileged to serve 900,000 members across all of our different lines of business here in the state of Florida. And my role as the, as the president is to, to first and foremost ensure the, uh, that we deliver quality health care to our members. And that's through our network of providers, through our many employees throughout the state of Florida, and all of that keeping our member in focus. Wow, that's that's a, a lot of different members, and, and you touch a lot of different um, areas. And again, as you mentioned, we'll we'll delve into that a little bit more. Samantha, tell us about your role, and again, as Holly touched on the ele- the relationship, excuse me, with Elevant. Uh, super excited to be here with Holly. So I lead the government relations team for Florida on behalf of Elevant Health. Uh, what that means is that Holly and I get to work uh, very closely on a on a daily basis. Uh, Simply Healthcare. 
uh, plans here in Florida is a, a very big part of who we are as a, as a company. Um, we have been in Florida for many, many years. Um, and as she mentioned, uh, Elevance Health really is um, working on focusing and, and transforming what a traditional health benefit organization has looked like in the past and really want to transform that into being a lifetime trusted health partner, um, which is our goal. And Holly works very uh, closely with us on achieving that goal for the members that we serve here in Florida. Samantha, can you tell us how long you've been with Elevance and what brought you to your current role today? Sure. Thank you. Um, I have been with Elevance Health since September of 2022, um, so still fairly new to the company, um, but uh, really we hit the ground running um, as, as soon as I had the opportunity to join in, in the fall uh, previous to that, um, I've worked in and around uh, Florida government and politics uh, for well over a decade in a variety of roles, um, mostly with the state in various capacities. Um, I've worked uh, in the attorney general's office. So I had the privilege of working for two House speakers in the Florida House of Representatives. Um, and then I jumped out and was able to serve for a handful of years in various roles with the executive branch. Um, within agencies, uh, leading legislative affairs, um, was chief of staff and interim secretary uh, of the Florida Lottery as well. Um, and just super excited to now be here with um, Simply and Elevance Health. So Holly, if people are not familiar um, with Medicaid and all the different things along with healthcare and insurance, can you tell us who's eligible for um, a plan with Simply, and, and you mentioned Florida Healthy Kids. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? Sure, of course. Um, to start with Medicaid, that is, Medicaid is a program for assistance for needy children and families, and you know um, is a is a important part of healthcare in the state of Florida, and really focuses on primarily moms and babies, but also um, disabled um, adults as well. We have also a long-term care component in there for members who meet Medicaid income eligibility criteria, who, who meet nursing home placement criteria, but you know really want to stay in their home. And we're really proud of that component of the Medicaid program. The Medicare program is primarily for elderly individuals. That's a federal program that we participate as a Medicare Advantage program. And folks can go into a traditional Medicare with the government program, or they can choose a Medicare HMO, which offers more benefits and um, add-ons to enhance the health for the health for those members. Our Florida Healthy Kids program is for folks who don't quite meet the income criteria. They're quite a little bit above the income criteria for Medicaid programs, but still largely need help. A lot of those get assistance with their, their with their premiums for that health insurance. It's a very robust health insurance program. And members can get assistance if they meet that that income threshold that's not quite a, you know at the Medicaid criteria, but lower than you know a certain threshold that they need assistance. Or people can choose to buy full pay insurance with Florida Healthy Kids if they don't have other option. And that's a really great program for um, children. It's for children only. Um, let me state that. So it's Florida Healthy Kids, right? Um, for kids who need insurance, um, again kind of in that zone of not qualifying for Medicaid or want to just full pay because they don't have access through um, jobs or whatnot as well. 
Yeah, no, that's that's a wonderful refresher. Again, we hear these terms a lot, and it's always um, important to kind of level set and remind ourselves um, of of those definitions, and and so we're all on the same page. Um, I know that Simply Healthcare um, serves um, individuals statewide through various regions. Um, can you talk about a little bit more, maybe about the benefits that individuals um, through Simply receive? Um, through through their various plans? Sure, yeah. For the Medicaid program, it is a full comprehensive suite of insurance, it just, just like uh, any insurance plan that would cover medically necessary um, health services in the program. But we also, as a Medicaid health plan, are able to offer additional, what we call enhanced benefits that can be um, for example, we have a benefit if someone needs a, a one-time assistance with housing for members who qualify for that. There can be payments for that. There are enhanced benefits around vision and dental benefits. We have a doula program that is a fantastic enhanced benefit that um, is not necessarily part of a traditional health insurance program, but we found that it's, it's really tremendously beneficial and are able to offer that because it has proven health outcomes. Any of the benefits that we offer obviously have to have a tie back into the whole health and the health uh, outcomes of the member. Um, we um, have many of those. I think we have over, Sam, I think it's 50 enhanced benefits that lay on top of the traditional Medi the traditional Medicaid. And don't quote, don't quote me on that, but it's in that neighborhood of, uh, of enhanced benefits. We have um, enhanced therapy benefits. There's a multitude of uh, supportive services that really are aimed at getting at the health and the whole health of members. Wow. Now, again, you, you serve individuals statewide. How many employees does Simply Healthcare have in the state of Florida? We have about 1,300 employees that support the, the organization through direct employees of Simply and then also employees of Elevance who are dedicated 100% to the service of our members here in the state of Florida. And um, we, I will say that we also have, as a company, Elevance, 6,000 employees in the state of Florida who, you know, support Medicare, other Medicare lines of business, who support other businesses that happen to live, live in the state of Florida. So we do have a very broad footprint, both in our business, which is simply healthcare, and in the, um, the business of Elevance as a whole of employees supporting that broader book of business. Well, thank you for sharing everything um, and more about, you know, Simply and, and Elevance and, and telling um, our audience about the, the breadth and depth of your employee base. Um, I think it's so important um, and um, we're grateful for companies like yours who are proactive in training their employees about the signs and indicators of potential human trafficking. As you outlined, your, in, your employees are everywhere throughout the state, you know, various counties, every county. So, as we know, you know, human trafficking unfortunately happens in, in every zip code, you know, throughout our state and nationally and, and globally. So it's so important that folks that are, are working in the community, engaging with the public, know, you know, what to spot, um, where to report it and, and what to do. Why has it been so important for you to train your employees on these potential signs and indicators um, of human trafficking? Well, um, as we talked about our mission is as a company and we've we know that it is the most effective way to deliver health care is to look at the whole health of an individual and part of that we 
we know that a person who has experienced trauma, and I, I, and I can't hardly think of a, a worse tra- traumatic event for somebody, um, more so than human trafficking, we know the effects that that has on the person's health and their health outcomes. We, we see that. We know that our population is vulnerable. And they are, well, as you alluded to, this anybody could become a victim of human trafficking. We know our Medicaid population is particularly vulnerable to that condition. And, you know, as a company, we started thinking about, you know, how do we have at every touch point, at every touch point in our company, everybody who is member and public facing have the right tools, the right training to recognize those signs. It started with our case managers. We provide them, you know, as just part of our, they are the, our case managers are the, you know, field-based folks who are out there serving our members. So it started with th- those folks who for many years have been getting, been getting abuse, neglect, and exploitation training. But as we started thinking about it and seeing traumatic events, not, not just human trafficking, but traumatic events with our members, we, we said, well, there's somebody on the phone. There's somebody in our call center who's talking to these people who might, there might be a sign. And if they are trained to pick it up, they should know. They should be trained to recognize those signs. There could be, you know, it's a, a provider relations person in a provider's office who's talking to a provider or a member. So we decided to, to take it to another level, not just say our frontline case manager folks, but anybody, it started with the thought process of anybody who's member facing should be trained to recognize the signs of trauma. And then we, you know, we're so, um, from our first awareness training, we were so blown away by the power of that and the positive response that folks had to say, this really will help us help our members. It helps us be more empathetic. It helps us listen. It helps us understand. It helps us recognize, as you said, those signs. We broadened it to the decision to become a trauma-informed care organization on the whole, you know, the entire organization offering training to everybody in our entire organization, whether you process a claim, whether you're talking to providers, whether you're talking to members. And um, I'm proud to say that we have about a dozen of our leaders who are subject matter experts have gone through a 20 hour course on, on recognizing trauma. And we have 90% of our employees who have completed a certificate course in recognizing the signs of, of trauma. So we, that, um, you know, I'm very proud of that. And, you know, I have some, some great examples of how that's directly benefited our members. I did also want to, sit, to know, and I think you know, that we're committed to joining the 100% Club. So the 100% Club is a partnership between businesses, organizations throughout the state, and Florida Attorney General Ashley Moody and the Florida Alliance to End Human Trafficking. And it's a challenge to those businesses to train 100% of their employees. The Attorney General's office recognizes that these organizations are taking proactive steps, which is so important to to train their employees on the signs, the quick references, what to do if they suspect alleged human trafficking and exploitation and and where to report it. And for more information, if people want to get involved and and learn more about the initiative, they can visit youcanstophht.com. And we are so, so very pleased um, that you all have produced that and are offering that that challenge. We are also committed to 
delivering that training to 100% of our employees as well. And I want to say that I applaud, you know, you and, and Simply Healthcare for proactively training your employees regardless of their job description. I think a lot of times we rely on, you know, law enforcement, service providers to keep our community safe and to know the signs and the indicators and what to do because I think we as, you know, just human beings, sometimes we don't want to get involved. We downplay maybe something we saw with our own two eyes out in the community running errands. Um, and, you know, people don't want to get involved if they don't know for sure, you know, in their gut that something's going on because no one wants to be wrong. And what if I make a false allegation and someone gets in trouble? But it's so important to think of the other side of that coin, you know, and think, what if something is going on or about to happen? And, you know, a training that I took took, you know, a little over an hour or um, for the individuals who are, who um, received that trauma uh, informed training, which again, so important. Um, and again, applaud those efforts that you could save a life. I mean, it's a small, small investment. And to your point, Holly, it takes everyone. We, um, if you're processing um, paperwork in HR or accounting or billing, um, or you're those frontline case managers, everyone has the opportunity to say something and we can't rely on, you know, the, the tireless effort of law enforcement and, and our service providers who, you know, are, are unrelenting in their efforts to prevent and stop and, and to unfortunately react um, when this is going on. I want to bring in Samantha. Um, I've read a lot of different articles recently about the work that, that Simply and Elevance has done specifically in the state of Florida in rural communities. Um, you know, as we know, um, Florida is a very diverse state. People don't always come to the state for the theme parks. Um, sometimes they're going to, you know, small beach um, and fishing communities, um, bed and breakfast. There's there's a lot of different ways that people can enjoy, you know, our state. But with that comes, um, you know, finite resources. Um, and so I've been so impressed by the outreach that you have done, especially post um, hurricanes and, and storms over the last year. Can you talk a little bit about why that's important? And then also because of the training that your employees have received, um, you know, being out in the community, how that's helped them interact with, you know, potential members and, and just general outreach that you all are doing. Absolutely. Thank you so much um, for, for asking about our rural communities. Um, to your point, uh, they are such an incredible bedrock of who we are in the state. Um, and a lot of our members um, that we serve from a Simply perspective are in some of our more rural areas. Uh, as you know, when the Hurricane Ian came through, um, it, it devastated Southwest Florida. Um, very proud uh, of Holly's leadership um, and our Elevance uh, Health's leadership um, in immediately coming to action. Um, and uh, very quickly, we're able to donate a million dollars to um, Florida's Hurricane Disaster Recovery Fund. We're very proud of that effort. Um, but we also recognized um, that there was going to be a lot of, of work and assistance needed on the ground. Um, and so we prided ourselves in recognizing that uh, we had to be adaptable to the needs of the people at the time. And we recognized and tried to go in eyes wide open that the needs in, in the morning on a Monday may be very different than the needs in the afternoon on Monday. One of the things that we were able to do with um, uh, providers in the Southwest Florida community 
was um, we heard uh, the the tales of our healthcare workers who wanted to get to work and they wanted to be there serving their communities. And one of the challenges that we were hearing is that the employees just didn't have gas in their cars to get back and forth from their homes and back to the hospitals um, to get to work. And so uh, through Holly's leadership, uh, we were able to send fuel trucks into Lee County um, and provided I believe it was over 600 cars over two days, two different fuel drops um, of gas in those healthcare workers' cars so they could then go back and continue to serve their community. One of the other things that we were able to do, uh, recognizing that some of the impact in the rural communities um, was much easier for us to go to them than maybe it was for them to get access to a lot of the resources that were available in the community. So we actually, um, working through our our Elevance Health um, uh, sister company up in Georgia, they sent down their um, RV that they have, and we did what we called Simply Mobile Uh, healthcare units. And we went to four different areas over the course of four days and brought the needs to the community. Uh, We did everything from hot meals to wellness checks. We had um, some mental and behavioral health services available, um, uh, as well as uh, hygiene kits, um, and really just tried to be adaptable to the the needs of those community members at that that moment in time. Wow. There's so much to to touch on from from what you said and get, getting back to some of the um, anecdotes and the stories that that Holly alluded to, but you know, just want to state and and I think we know this um, because of training we received, um, you know, through different organizations, but but simply an Elevance because of the members it serves are at that elevated vulnerability. So not only do we have, you know, individuals who um, might have a family member or, you know, children, minors who are part of, um, you know, Florida Healthy Kids or the child welfare system, you know, there's also individuals who are are challenged with um, finding affordable housing um, or maybe in and out of homelessness. Um, Obviously, there are other issues related to um, uh, attending school, um, and so, you know, your your employees are are really reaching so many different types of individuals who have elevated risk factors. Um, and and you know, again, being proactive, taking training, offering it, and and taking that pledge, as you mentioned, Holly, to to committing to to training 100% of your employees is is so important. Um, as with a lot of different companies around the state. You know, they have employees that live everywhere in, in the communities and they see things. And so to give them the tools and the resources is so important that hopefully we can, you know, end, um, you know, this horrific exploitation and these crimes, um, you know, sooner than later. Um, I do want to ask you, Holly, and you mentioned it. Um, what's been the feedback from your employees after taking this training? What are the stories that they've shared with you? It is just an, has been an overwhelmingly positive response in terms of a personal journey of growth for people and for our employees, as well as a response of saying, hey, this really helps me frame how important you know, my job is and this, these touch points that I have in the community and to, to be aware, to have the tools, to be educated, to be part of the solution, because it is, as you said, a horrific scourge on our society. It has, you know, people have 
resoundingly uh, responded, you know, so positively. And they've, they've brought forward, you know, many, many stories that have been hard, incredibly um, hard to hear, but, um, but also heartwarming. We had one of our case managers who did go through the training, who had a member, actual, natural member of Simply Healthcare Plans, who she found out was living with non-family members and a boyfriend. And when she started probing and recognizing those signs, realized that she was a victim of, of forced labor and, and forced sex trafficking and was able to get her out of the home, get her into first a, a residential treatment program um, for 30 days and then a partial hospitalization program for another 30 days. And then um, the member is st stable now, still residing in a facility for her own safety, is on track to, um, has a job, has a part-time job now, is broken that cycle, is on track to actually, and is talking and excited about going to college. You know, and that is that is the type of thing. The real, you know, those those stories, um, you know, are are just so heartwarming to hear. Even though I said, as I said, very hard that people we know that people and many people that we, you know, don't know that many of these people are in the shadows. But you know, they're bringing forward those stories and they're raising their hands to say, "What else can I do?" You mentioned um, how homelessness is really a condition that you know co-occurs often with victims in this situation and that you know i'm very proud of one of our community partnerships with camilla's house um, to provide grants that as an organization we don't medicate plan we don't and are not able to directly provide housing but we can fund through grants our community partners and so one of our grants that we started a couple years ago with camilla's house is for um, to provide housing shelter food um, and immediate uh, needs for folks, and a lot of it is targeted. It is generally for homelessness, but a lot of it is targeted to victims of, of sexual violence and sex trafficking and human trafficking. And not only with that program, so there's a grant component that is very, very important. And as good stewards and good um, corporate citizens, you know, we feel that it is really important for us to give back to the communities we serve. But it goes beyond, and with our employees, I'm so proud of them. They they said, it's, you know, that's not enough. And they started working with Camilla's house and said, what can we do, particularly with these women who have been victimized? And they started these programs. So we recruited volunteers to lead education programs at Camilla's house for resiliency, um, self-reliance, healthcare 101, money management, because we know that that can be a tool that um, perpetrators use is, 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 you know, financial constraints. So teaching these women who had been victims, and it was all a series of our own employees who said, you know, we want to be, you know, we want to take this a step beyond just donating the money. We want to be part of the solution in the community. And we've benefited 20 women. We've had 20 women go through those programs and the stories that, you know, our employees say, you know, tell about that and how gratified they were to be, you know, as, like I said, their personal journey, it was incredible because they really saw the need and, you know, were able to help meet, you know, help those, help those women in their journey, right. To, to get out of that cycle. And, um, so very proud of them. And most of them didn't have any health literacy. They were, that was one of the eye openers that our employees said, you know, almost none of them 
had access to basic health care. Out of the women that we served in those programs, and we did that health care one-on-one that I talked about, almost invariably, none of them had had access to basic health care, which then, you know, um, was it was just startling, right? But, you know, I, um, teaching them how and what is out there and how to access those benefits is uh, is putting us on the right road. I feel like some of the the things that you mentioned, Holly, you were um, reading from my notes or, or singing from my my song sheet because it's it's so refreshing that um, everything that you all are doing um, and and working with other organizations um, where you don't you know serve the immediate member, um, you know collaboration is key. I you know um, will will say it over and over again um, because we can't be everything to to everyone you know given you know certain organizations, but we need to rely and and work hand in hand you know with different folks who who can fulfill those needs for for the members and the community. And I think it's so important. Um, I feel also that you all could teach like a masterclass on really delving in to the community um, and being proactive um, because there's a lot of great companies in Florida and we have been so privileged to, um, you know, receive um, applications to join the 100% club from you know, big fortune, you know, 500 companies all the way down to um, tax collectors offices with, you know, 50 people because they know the importance of getting educated and getting trained. Um, And if we could all do that, you know, imagine the world a year from now or five years from now taking those small steps. And again, it's, it's just educating ourselves to one know that the issue is out there um, and, and taking a training that is fact-based and not, um, you know, surrounding myths and kind of, you know, misconceptions about this topic, which, you know, sometimes there can be a lot. Um, and then just sharing that with our networks and, and you all are, are definitely doing that um, and, and putting, you know, truth to power, as they say, and rather just talking about it, doing something, which I think is so important. Thank you, Holly, for sharing the partnerships that you have around the state. You mentioned specifically Camilla's House down in Miami. Can you tell us a little bit more about what they do? Yeah, Camilla's House is a not-for-profit organization that operates in South Florida. They have physical locations in South Florida in the most vulnerable communities to provide um, housing, food, um, care to homeless folks and marginalized folks in in South Florida. Um, Just a great organization that we've been privileged to work with for many years. Thank you. And I think it's also important to know and and remind individuals if they suspect someone is a victim of human trafficking, they are seeing potential signs or indicators um, about exploitation, you know, commercial sexual exploitation or, or labor trafficking, that it's so important to make a call to the National Human Trafficking Hotline, which is 888-373-7888, or text BE FREE to 233-733. It's always important to let someone know if you suspect something is going on. And, you know, folks that are in law enforcement, you know, want individuals to make the call. If you think someone is in immediate danger, you know, obviously, please reach out to to 911 or your local law enforcement agency. There are so many different resources around the state. Holly mentioned one, you know, Camilla's House um, serving Miami. Uh, But there are other organizations, um, Voices for Florida, uh, One More Child. There are a lot of great organizations in different regions um, throughout the state. But you need to make the tip 
or make the call to, to report alleged uh, exploitation because law enforcement doesn't know to investigate um, if they don't know that these situations have been identified or potentially identified. So I did want to mention that. And, and thank you for sharing more, Holly, about your partnerships. Um, Samantha, um, Holly touched on it, but I want to ask you about why collaborations you know, with different you know, companies and, and service providers around the state is so important for you all. I think you hit the nail on the head when you said, you know, we individually can't be all things to all people and, and combating this this horrendous uh, issue of human trafficking um, is a joint and collaborative effort. We've done various partnerships um, with local law enforcement in the Miami area, recognizing that oftentimes, as you said, uh, they are those that first line of defense for um, these victims. Um, And we recognize that that collaboration and those efforts and those Uh, training and awareness tools and resources. Everybody has a different piece of this puzzle, and it truly is going to take all of us um, to to work towards the ultimate solution um, on this. Uh, I think, you know, excited um, for what 2023 has to offer. Obviously, um, as Holly mentioned, uh, committed to joining the 100% club, um, but we're committed to uh, continuing to partner with various organizations across the state as we have historically, um, because, I, you know, it truly is a collaborative effort. Everybody brings a unique piece of the solution to the table um, and having everybody that's willing to participate is really just going to move the ball forward. So really grateful um, for, for you, Aaron, and this organization for the attorney general's leadership on this continued leadership for your board. Um, just truly grateful to, uh, be in a state that is focusing on being the solution for this. Thank you. And, and we are excited as well. Holly, uh, what would you tell uh, one of your peers who is a CEO or, or president leading um, a company in Florida about joining the 100% club and, and taking human trafficking awareness training? As we know, there are a lot of different requirements for, for new employees entering a different organization in the workforce. So sometimes, you know, we hear, oh, it's, it's another thing that's added to the plate and it's, you know, detracting from, you know, maybe whatever that individual's job description or, or work kind of getting, you know, ramped up and started. What would you tell them to encourage um, them to, to take the commitment and get their employees trained? Well, first off, you know, I'd have them talk to one of our employees who has touched one of these individual lives. You know, that is incredibly powerful. And we do, as an industry, we touch millions of lives of Floridians. And we have a opportunity to be part of the solution, the solution that, you know, your whole entire alliance is working on. And um, to not take advantage of that would be, would be a shame because it is a, it is a commitment of time, but I would say the returns in terms of impacting individual lives and ending this, um, this terrible, I, I don't know what to call it, pandemic or this, this just horrific situation of human trafficking, the power to make a difference is, is incredible. And, um, I would, uh, I, I would say that and talk to you, listen to your podcast about, you know, how this is impacting Floridians, how we are, Florida is, I think, um, the third, this is the third largest state, or we have the third, the disprivilege of being third in rankings of human trafficking in the entire United States. It is just a scourge on our society. 
and it is within our power to be part of the solution. And I would definitely encourage uh, my fellow CEOs to, to take advantage of that training and, and be a part of the solution. Yeah, thank you for that. And unfortunately, as you mentioned, Florida um, is ranked third for the number of calls to the National Human Trafficking Hotline. And we are known for a lot of wonderful things on, on the other side of the coin. Um, our, our leadership in the state for over a decade now, um, after first introducing legislation related to human trafficking in 2012 with Florida Safe Harbor Law, um, has done tremendous um, and made a lot of strides. But there's a lot of work to be done especially um, you know, where, where we can play a role with that prevention and increasing awareness and training. So I want to thank you, Holly Prince with Simply Healthcare and Samantha Farron with Elevance for joining us on the podcast today. Listening to, to Holly and to Samantha about everything you know, Simply is doing in the state of Florida, I found it the most profound um, and really impactful that you know simply is really a great corporate steward, um, and what I mean by that is you know collaborating with area service providers to not only train their employees but to train the community at large, um, and, and really doing that you know in a variety of d- different ways. Um, you know, Doctor Toll, how important do you think it is for you know managed healthcare plans like Simply and others? To, to educate, you know, their workforce. They are, you know, meeting with potential um, clients and members to help them gain access to healthcare. Um, you know, if it was easy as, you know, signing on the dotted line, um, you know, they wouldn't have maybe seen some things or potential signs and indicators um, as, as Holly outlined with some of um, her employees. How important do you think that, you know, these, these managed plans, these healthcare plans that partner you know, with the actual providing physicians um, play in, in the role in, in preventing human trafficking? Uh, extremely important. I, you know, we can't emphasize that enough. Healthcare and, and managed care and our insurers all play a vital role in helping us to manage our lives, you know, comprehensively or, or you know, holistically. And so, it, you know, it's essential that this tra- education so everybody understands what is human trafficking, what does it look like, you know, who might be the potential um, victims, if you will, of human trafficking, which all everyone's a potential victim, um, regardless of your, you know, background and the vulnerabilities, which we can talk about in a moment. But you know, it takes a village. You know, we talk about it takes a village to raise a child. It takes a village and, and partners who truly understand what human trafficking looks like and the impact. Each and every one of those circumstances from a healthcare perspective are opportunities to recognize someone who may be being trafficked. And that may be the one contact that that survivor has with someone from the outside who might be uh, an opportunity for rescue and and, and, um, relief from the experience. And so being able to see it and understand it and recognize this could be someone who's being trafficked. So that opportunity to educate, you know, we talk a lot about educating ER physicians and nurses and other ER staff just recognize this is what it looks like. We did this decades ago with domestic violence where, you know, we posted things in the bathroom so that if we were able to isolate, you know, um, the domestic violence victim, she could see here's an opportunity for resources. Fortunately, we are here, at least here in the state of Florida, I was 
um, over actually in a healthcare center uh, visiting a friend who had broken her hip, and they have something posted on human trafficking, the signs and symptoms in a healthcare setting that is typically for seniors. So those opportunities that spread the word and educate all of us on this, you know, if something doesn't look right, it probably isn't right. And so, but recognizing and seeing what it might be kind of then gives us the, the pathway to reach out to others who can be helpful. I mean, we know that our survivors often are very physically and we know emotionally uh, sick individuals. I mean, they haven't, in the active phase of trafficking, they don't get health care. So, what, so it may occur in an emergency situation where they end up in the ER or center care or something like that, that brings them to the forefront of the healthcare provider to say, oops, this one looks like, you know, it could be potential vulnerability and trafficking and then stepping in and, and assisting. Well, and it's always a good reminder to discuss some of the potential signs and indicators of exploitation and human trafficking. Do you just want to share some of those or, or you think are, are maybe key, maybe physical or behavioral, maybe potential indicators that you know our, our, our audience and others can be on the lookout for? Clearly, just like with domestic violence, the perpetrator of human trafficking is not letting you know, the survivor out of his or her sight. You know, they're, they're clinging. When emergency room professionals or other healthcare professionals attempt to interview uh, the individual, the, the perpetrator of the trafficking is not, not leaving the room. You know, they're, they're answering for, you know, the survivor. He or she is not allowed to speak for themselves. Tremendous withdrawal, uh, in difficulty in making eye contact. Um, from a physical standpoint, you know, unexplained bruises and injuries um, that, again, he or she is not allowed to elaborate on. Um, things like um, levels of intensity, that emotional regulation, where there's an extreme reaction to a situation that most of us would see as fairly benign and a common, you know, I'm asking a common assessment question, and I get this reaction that's extremely incredibly extreme. That's going to suggest that there's something more going on than what, you know, in a sense meets the eye. There's, you know, it's like, hmm, what's happening? Uh, in addition to that, um, the clothing may, you know, they may, you know, their clothing may not be clean. They're, you know, they're, um, un they may be, you know, unkempt from the perspective of not having an opportunity to shower, you know, and typically, you know, it's, that would be out of the ordinary for most people coming into that kind of setting. Um, the, the vulnerabilities are for those that, you know, an incomplete social history or psychosocial history that they can't answer the questions. Um, um, not willingness to give an, a complete address. You know, if you go into the emergency room, they're doing, if it's not an extreme emergency, they're doing some of that registration piece of your demographics, et cetera, and they can't give those answers because A, they may not know them because they don't have an address. Um, some of the kinds of things that get picked up um, in school settings with youth is that multiple children at the same address with a with a uh, caretaker who's not a parent or a relative. And so that's often a cue that there's something going on. There's multiple people being trafficked. So it's that struggle in that engagement. And what's so important when we think in terms of treatment for survivors, there's two necessary ingredients, building a trust and the installation of hope. So when we talk about our partners, it's essential that they not re-traumatize the survivor. So when we think in terms of those assessment questions, the information, we're just trying to do our jobs. You walked into the ER, you walked into the healthcare center, you walked into whatever, school setting, et cetera. You know, being cognizant of the kind of reaction you're getting from the survivor or the individual that you think 
or it is a survivor that we want to uncover, we need to really be cautious about how we, and that's what's important with the field, how those providing care and support address the survivor. Least of all, do no harm. You know, the Hippocratic Oath. We cannot re-traumatize these survivors because those are the kinds of things. And yet it's a struggle. There are so few people who are really well-trained in human trafficking that we, we inadvertently do things that might work in another population. Like, for instance, the substance use disorder population, sometimes that harder, you know, approach, more directive approach is not going to work with our survivors. That's not going to allow them to engage you know, in services and to open up and talk about it. The other element of that is that sense of shame and guilt that comes along with being a survivor. So understanding that element on why an individual may be reluctant to share more information about the experience. I've had clients actually say to me, I, I, I want the help and the assistance, but I don't want to put pain on the provider, the healthcare provider, because my experience is so heinous. I don't want to cause you pain in hearing my story. So they hesitate to share information. So understanding that, and particularly in that assessment piece, and then engaging them in, to enter into services is really important. Well, and to add to that, and, and Holly outlined it, um, you know, the, the collaborations with service providers that are doing some of the work that you outline and assessing the situation, you know, with survivors, because again, you know, we, we know that every uh, circumstance and situation is different. Therefore, the, the care will be very different. Um, but as, as Holly outlined, you know, Simply has partnered with service providers like Camilla's House down in Miami to, you know, again, train their employees, but also to provide awareness and resources should they encounter um, and identify a potential victim um, at that time that might come into, you know, their community health centers um, or their offices. And so that's why it's so important to, you know, know who, um, those service providers and those those individuals are. I think sometimes it's it's always easy for us to remember our first responders who are there to come in um, once um, a report or um, a tip has been you know called or texted in, um, and and then you know law enforcement does their investigatory their work, um, and and that's a huge part of the the identification, obviously of an individual in a potentially exploitive situation, but the long-term, you know, sustainable efforts are really undertaken by these service providers. And, um, you know, it's every, every case is, is different. Um, and, and as we've mentioned before, um, sometimes these individuals are, do not identify as a victim. And it takes a long period of time and, and proper care to be able and counseling, um, you know, from, you know, educated and trauma informed individuals. Um, and, and that can, you know, set a whole nother instance of, um, you know, longer term delay for addressing what, you know, occurred to them. But it all starts with training and that increased awareness. So I really, really like what both Holly and Samantha said that, you know, there are some people that, you know, want want to help but don't know how. But taking the Florida Alliance's one-hour training is such a huge key in prevention. And it's something that everyone can do, whether you take the training, the hour-long training in one sitting, you take it over a few lunch periods, 
over a week, but that learning the facts, you know, dispelling myths, which, which our training does, so that you can be properly informed, regardless of your roles and your responsibilities with an organization, but then to take that to share with your networks. And, and that preventative piece is so important. And, and that early detection or as early as possible, the detection. And I'd like to remind people who, you know, you may not have the whole puzzle. You may have a piece of the puzzle and you may think it doesn't matter. It's not important. It really isn't suggestive of human trafficking. But providing that piece of the puzzle, particularly to law enforcement, who most likely have other pieces of the puzzle, often they're tracking potential traffickers, but they're attempting to gather enough data. And then, boom, your piece of the puzzle may be the last one that gives them the real picture and then they can intervene. So everything that we do, every small thing that we do is important in assisting the survivors. The, that whole piece of installation of hope is, is so important. And you mentioned they may not even believe that they've been trafficked. They also believe that they don't, they don't deserve the life that all of us so richly deserve, regardless of our experience, our backgrounds, and even regardless of our behaviors. I've had clients say to me, well, I wanted the drugs, so it was my fault that I was there. And I, my response is, I don't care whether you wanted the drugs or not, you know, connected to your trafficking or not connected to your trafficking. No one had the right to objectify you in the ways in which you were being exploited. And so it's not your fault. So there is hope that we can assist you over time in, in restoring, you know, your life journey towards wholeness. And as I like, I mean, I really liked that rather than recovery because surviving human trafficking is a lifelong process. Well, Dr. Toll, thank you so much for being so candid and sharing your experience with working with survivors and clients in your professional capacity. And obviously, the Florida Alliance is grateful for your service um, on our board of directors and for today for serving as my co-host on this podcast. So thank you again, Dr. Toll. Thank you, Erin. Appreciate it. This has been another podcast by the Florida Alliance to End Human Trafficking. 